Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, an author, speaker, and apologetics professor also here at Biola University. And uniquely for this interview, phoning in from my car because I'm headed to my son's football game. Sean and I are here today with Pastor Chris Brooks, who is a pastor, radio host, he's a seminary dean, community developer. Uh, Chris, I think the primary hat he wears is as senior pastor of Evangel Ministries, which is about a 1,600-member church in the heart of the city of Detroit. Chris also serves as dean at Moody Theological Seminary outside Detroit and is a host of the very popular national radio show entitled Equipped with Chris Brooks, which is heard on over 200 stations throughout the U.S. and Canada. Chris is also a, f- a very good friend of Biola, a uh, graduate of our program in Christian Apologetics, is the author of a couple books that I, we both, we, Sean and I both recommend strongly to you, Kingdom Dreaming and Urban Apologetics. So Chris, delighted to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for this discussion of race and the church. Well, it's great to be with you guys. A very important conversation, as you know, that's being played out in front of our eyes each and every day, and I'm glad that the church is not shying away from the conversation. Chris, you you pastor just on the outskirts of downtown Detroit. Uh, I take it a lar- largely multi-ethnic, maybe predominantly African-American church. How, yeah. have you, how have you dealt with racial issues in your community, particularly in the last year or so? Well, our church is in the heart of the city of Detroit, and we have a really interesting history. Real quick, Scott, we were started by a Caucasian pastor in 1967. Now, those who are familiar yes. with 1967 knows it was a time of national unrest. A lot of um, unrest boiled over into uh, conflicts between communities and police. And imagine a Caucasian pastor coming to the heart of the city of Detroit, a chocolate city as we like to call it, into the city of Detroit and offering nothing but the gospel and love. But that's what happened. He couldn't find a building to open the church in, so the only building he could afford to buy was a former Black Panthers headquarters. And that's the origins of Evangel Ministries. And from there, God has always had in our DNA this passion for race reconciliation. He had, as part of his mission, George Bogle, who was our founding pastor, this desire to just hug as many black men as he could and show them the love of Jesus Christ. So we've been committed to multiculturalism, multi-ethnicity from the very beginning. But obviously, as the city's demographics has changed, so has our churches. So we are predominantly African-American. But what we've tried to do is to make sure people understand that the goal in the kingdom of the new community that Christ formed, which is the church, is to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-linguistic family uh, that is united in Him. And and we really do believe that a united church is a wonderful witness to a divided world. That as they see our unity and uh, they experience the weariness of the brokenness in the world, they'll be attracted to, uh, to Christ. Chris, I, did, I didn't realize that about the, how the church was founded. What an incredible step of faith for one person to make yeah. you know, back during a, during a really challenging time. Um, in, in your view, how has the conversation on race changed in the years since you have pastored out, outside Detroit? You know, I think it could be said that the number one defining characteristic of our 
uh, currencies and of humanity is technology, how technology has just revolutionized everything. Nothing has been untouched, including the race issue. You know, what has happened more than any other phenomenon is the fact that we can't hide from these incidences that provoke and evoke emotion. They are brought to our doorstep through the Internet, through social media. Uh, you remember, it wasn't just uh, a few months ago last year that Philando Castillo was shot by yes. a police officer, yes. and it played out on Facebook Live. Um, so we're, we're, we're more aware of the fallenness of the world, and we're more aware of the fallenness and the way that that manifests itself across the board, but including in the area of race. So we're more aware of injustices from business leaders to education, you name it, even church leaders. Religious leaders are not unscathed by that. But I include in that that we are more acutely aware of racial injustice than what we've ever been before. And our congregations are demanding that we not be silent about it, that we speak up about it. So I think the way the conversation has changed is that there's more demand to address what people are more aware of than ever before. Chris, why, why do you think the church has been so silent on issues of race in the past, or at least branches of the church have been silent about race? Yeah, and I was, I was, I'm glad you clarified that, because obviously coming from a predominantly African-American church tradition, we're not silent on it, never have had that luxury. But I will say for white evangelicals, and as you guys both know, I spend a lot of time uh, with uh, my white brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, I'm an evangelical, and I wear that label proudly with, with understanding. But I will say that it's a, just a very uncomfortable situation to talk about, and uh, nobody wants to do that. I mean, the desire is to really say, can we just move beyond this? And I liken it, and this may be a hard analogy, but I liken it to the counseling that I do as a pastor with couples where maybe the husband has been abusive, have a history of violence in his background, and he's wanting to say to his wife, hey, I'm sorry, I want to move forward. He doesn't want to go back and deal with all of that messiness, but uh, wives need to do that. Wives need to be able to get healing and to discuss it and to go back in order to move forward. And I think that that is the biggest challenge between the way that minorities, in particular African Americans, see this topic and the way that uh, whites see this topic. I think my white brothers and sisters have a deep desire to say, can we just move forward and just focus in on how we can build bonds of unity now? My African-American brothers and sisters are saying, but wait a minute, there's some wounds that were never properly dealt with. we got to go back so we can move forward. Somehow we got to be able to reconcile that. And I think that, that's a really helpful analogy, Chris, uh, because you know, my experience in predominantly white churches has been that that's just something we don't want to revisit. Uh, it's, it's painful, it's, it's difficult, it's challenging to think about, uh, and it's, it's, it's just a lot easier to pretend like we can be in denial about that. Yeah, Chris, you graciously had me on your show equipped a little while ago to talk about my book, Ethics, which I appreciate you having me on. And in that yeah. book, my goal was to help students think through some of the most difficult ethical issues of our day. Chris, it dawned on me not too long ago that in that book, I talk about pornography, I talk about war, I talk about marriage. I don't even talk about race. And mm. it hit me that it's such a blind spot for me personally, given my background and my experience, 
that if any African American or minority wrote that book, that would have been the first chapter. Sure. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you could weigh in and talk about what you see just blind spots that people have, whether it's whites, whether it's blacks, or just human beings approaching this issue that just prevents us to really have that compassion and understand where our brothers and sisters of a different race are coming from. Yeah, I love that you said that, and I really appreciate, Sean, you just being transparent and honest. That's what I love about you guys. But one of the things that I will say is this, is that we all write, uh, speak, minister from a cultural context. You just referenced the fact that your cultural context was such that that wouldn't have been the first chapter you wrote. It didn't really just pop into your mind to write it. No uh, intentionality there, no ill will. It's just the context. But the context you grew up in did provoke you to write certain things. Well, so it is with uh, Hispanics and Latinos. So it is with Asians. So it is with African Americans. Here is the problem. I think that what we've done is we've normalized white, white culture to make it the base culture, that it is uh, not culture actually at all. It is normative and that every other group is a special interest group. So when African Americans bring up an issue to say, hey, Sean, maybe we should talk about race, too often it is seen as a special interest. Well, why are you trying to smuggle in this special interest when are the issues we see as being vital, they, they are the ones that really are the standard, and everything else is a special addition to the gospel. And what I would love to see happen is for us to be able to listen to people of different uh, uh, cultural backgrounds and experiences and to honor them as being equally valid, though different than mine, equally valid and worthy of consideration. And I think we got a lot of examples of this in Scripture. And I'll just reference one gentleman, and that is Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, man, I read that for a long time, verses 1 through 7, and I just looked at it as a place where we're introduced to deacons in the New Testament, you know. Uh, but when you look at Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, you have basically an issue of economic injustice based off of ethnicity. And these Hellenistic uh, widows, uh, were not being serviced in the way that they should be, and a dispute arose. And I love the fact that the apostles and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem didn't just dismiss it. They didn't minimize it, but they honored the concern. And I think we have to recognize that we all come from a cultural context. None of us are complete in our understanding of issues. and We need to honor one another's various experiences in life. One more, and then he jumped in. Chris, I love what you said about listening and honoring the other cultural context. I was just reading a book by Benjamin Watson, Under Our Skin, yes. and he described something that just gave me pause and opened my eyes. He said, in many white families, when you talk about having the talk with your kids, that means the talk about sex and relationships. Yes. Yes. In black families, the talk means if you get pulled over by a white cop, how do you protect your life? I heard that and I thought, is that really a central depressing issue? Talk about that for me, if you don't mind. Yeah, we cannot underestimate in this conversation, Sean, a big area that you talk a lot about, and that is the influence of media on the minds of, you talk a lot about youth, 
but the reality is on the minds of all of Americans. And what has been the predominant view of minorities in the media, in particular African Americans? Hollywood, by and large, has portrayed us as being violent, as being criminalized. Um, obviously, there's been the other end of the spectrum, which has been that we're uh, not intelligent, that we are only good for service uh, jobs, and that's it. Um, but a, a large number of Americans have their view that African Americans are violent and dangerous, in particular African American males. The news leads with these stories across the country because they feed into this. Well, with that being said, what ends up happening is that African Americans are disproportionately criminalized and targeted by police. And oftentimes, these police, and I love police, got police officers in my family, this is not to villainize them, but it is to say that they are not exempt from being shaped by these negative stereotypes. And these negative stereotypes pour over in the way we interact with groups. And none of us are exempt from that. And I'm just talking about African Americans right now. So in our culture, we know that the history has been we've been targeted by police in a disproportionate way. And if you don't know how to carry on a conversation with diplomacy, there is a high probability you're not going to leave that inter interaction safely. And so you're right. That conversation happens. And mothers, African-American mothers across this country, live with the sense of insecurity and fear that I'm raising an African-American son that may be misconstrued as a thief or as a criminal and he may not come home safely. You know, this morning when I was dropping off my kids, I put on my Michigan State University hoodie, and I love, I love that hoodie, and I, and I go to drop off my kids at a school, and I'm thinking to myself, and I literally, literally crossed my mind, um, man, I hope I'm not, I'm not misconstrued as, as a criminal because I got on some jeans and a hoodie, um, you know, this is the thought that uh, many of us live with, even those of us who don't have any of that in our background. Chris, let me let me follow up on that. Just, uh, I'm I'm interested. Have Have you ever been stopped by the police for no apparent reason? <laughs> I, let me just put it this way: I don't know of an African American male who is not. Um, man, there's there, there's so many stories that I can tell you. I can tell you of a time. When my brother and I were, uh, he's a senior in high school, I'm a sophomore in high school, we're coming back from a friend's house, it's late at night, my parents had moved out of the city, living in the suburbs now, and a police officer followed us for basically a mile. Uh, we weren't doing anything wrong, we knew we were being trailed, so we weren't speeding or anything, and uh, we pull up in front of our houses, our house, and uh, he flashes the lights and uh, comes over and asks us what we're doing in the neighborhood. We say we live here. And um, he tells us to get out of the car. We're both handcuffed. He has us sitting on the side of the street, literally in front of our house. Um, we were young. I know I didn't have an ID on me at the time. My brother had an ID that they're running. Uh, but we were just saying, can we at least just, just call? You can go knock on the door, and you can ask my parents. I mean, they're right there at the door. Uh, we were treated hostily. There was no grace at all. That was when I was a teen. Uh, one other story quickly. Recently, I was driving, and um, 
I didn't realize it. It was 1 a.m. in the morning. We got five kids. <laughs> we run out of diapers. I was going to Walmart to get some diapers. I'm coming home, and a police officer pulls up behind me. And, you know, there's a light at the top of, uh, in the back of your car, I got an SUV, there's a light above uh, at the top of your car in the back. Well, that light bulb had gone out. I didn't know it. So the cop pulls me over. Again, I know I'm not speeding. And uh, the cop says, you know, license and, and insurance. And I say, can I ask you why you pulled me over? And very hostily, he says, you don't ask me any questions. Give me the ID unless you want to go to jail. Wow. And just escalates the situation. Yeah. And I'm saying to him, you know, you don't have to escalate the situation. I'm just asking. I don't know why I'm pulled over. And he refuses to tell me why he pulled me over. And, um, and, and we go through this whole ordeal, and I'm saying to myself, I'm a Christian man, educated man. Uh, I'm a man who's going to carry myself in a way of diplomacy. But what if I wasn't? How would this situation have unfolded? Chris, thanks. I appreciate your vulnerability in, in sharing those stories. That, I think that's really helpful for our listeners to just to, rec- to recognize the, the realities that you live with. Can I, can I, let me go back theologically for a minute. Uh, where, where are some of the main places, in your view, that the Bible teaches uh, about the imperative of racial reconciliation? Uh, you know, in other words, why, why, why should why should we care as much as we as we should about racial issues, theologically? I, I, I'm going to make a really bold statement, and that is, if you are a pastor and you're teaching through the New Testament expositionally, and you're not regularly talking about race and ethnicity, then you're missing a major part of the New Testament. Let's think about the narrative for just a moment before I give you a specific passage. Jesus takes this small band of followers, and he gives them the responsibility of evangelizing a multi-ethnic world. And they go out and engage with groups of people that are diverse in culture and ethnicity. You just know, just practically, naturally, the type of issues that arise. We can anticipate those things, and the very things we would anticipate are the very things that do arise misunderstandings, uh, this, this cultural conditioning. So let me just give you two that I really think are significant. Number one, we ground all things concerning unity in the body of Christ in John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. You know, verses 20 through 23, Jesus there prays that we would be one, that his followers would be one. But he gives us the reason why that is important. He says twice in those three verses, so that the world will know that you have sent me. Somehow our unity adds credibility to our gospel witness. Our disunity, on contrast, discredits our gospel witness. The other thing that I find to be very interesting, and I think this is very important, and that is Galatians 2, when, when um, Paul confronts Peter to his face concerning his... his um, um, uh, his prejudice and his uh, hypocrisy concerning his interaction with the Gentiles, he says that the reason why I had to rebuke him publicly in verse 14 of Galatians chapter 2 was because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, for Paul to say that, that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that is the equivalent of saying his behavior was heretical. And this is why Paul felt like it was so important for him to rebuke Peter publicly. 
I think we have a lot of people in the church, evangelical churches, rightfully very concerned about doctrinal heresy. We analyze statements of faith, and if they are off in any way, we're going to criticize a group. But what we've not done is treated a behavioral heresy to the level that we should. So we'll blow it off and say, well, somebody like Robert E. Lee was a fine gentleman. He just had one blind spot. He supported slavery, right? And we minimize that. Yes. But that's, a, that, that's behavioral heresy. Yes. And I think we have to treat behavioral heresy the same way we do doctrinal heresy. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Chris Brooks, and to find more episodes, go to www.biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we have Chris Brooks back to continue our conversation for part two.